Gospel of Matthew chapter 4. And I want to begin reading at verse 12 and read through verse 23. Matthew chapter 4, beginning verse 12. In the transition between Christmas and New Year's, we begin to kind of uh, think about changes and as Kevin talked about, uh, making new commitments and decisions. And it's kind of difficult to move from a celebration of Christmas to a more serious contemplation of changes that need to be made. But I want to try to help us do that today in this sermon. Now when he, he Jesus, heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and to those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And walking by the sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they immediately left the nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And they immediately left the boat and their father and followed him. And Jesus was going about in all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. It was Abraham Lincoln who was quoted as saying, most people are as happy as they choose to be. Paul Meyer and Frank Minereth, eminent psychiatrists in Dallas, agree with that statement. And so they wrote a book on the manual, I call the Manual of the Cause and Cures of Depression, and titled the book, Happiness is a Choice. And Paul Meyer, in the foreword of that book, expanding on Lincoln's statement, said, I couldn't agree with anything more. Lincoln ought to know, for he experienced the agony of life the death of his fiancée, the lost elections, the civil war, and many other heartbreaking experiences brought great sorrow to his life. At one time he thought seriously about suicide, but he chose to be happy. 
He chose to overcome his depression and he found inner peace and happiness in the last days before he fell victim to the bullet of a hostile fellow man, end quote. Happiness is a choice. A woman went to the doctor again. She went often to the doctor and he was sure that her negative outlook toward life caused her to feel the way she felt. And so after a brief examination, he called her to the back. And there he had a room where he kept some medicine. There were large, there were shelves filled with bottles and a large section of empty bottles. He said to her, you know these bottles are different. They're different sizes and shape, but they're basically alike in that they're, they're uh, empty. And he said, I can take enough poison to put it in one bottle to kill a, a fellow human being. Or he said, I can put enough medicine in one of those bottles to bring down a fever or to soothe or ease a throbbing headache or kill some infection in one part of the body. He said, the important thing is that the choice is mine as to what I'm going to put in it. Then he paused for emphasis and looked at the woman and said, You know, every day that the good Lord gives us is like one of those empty bottles. I can fill it with love and affirming thoughts and attitudes. Or I can fill it with the ingredients that cause for despair and, 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 and disappointment, poisonous thoughts and attitudes. But the important thing is that the choice is mine. The choice is ours as we begin a new year. And God gives us these days, a day at a time, like empty bottles. And the choice is mine. I can fill them with the things that bring happiness or sorrow. I can fill them with the things that make for peace or for turmoil. I can be a blessing or I can be a curse, but the choice is mine. Now, I know what some of you are saying, perhaps in your mind. Sure, you're able, you're easy, it's easy for you to say that because the circumstances of your life are different than mine. But I want you to know that it is not the circumstances of your life that has made life for you the way it is. The list of the people who have overcome difficult circumstances to find success and happiness is awesome. Einstein couldn't talk, didn't say a word till he was four years old. Can you imagine how his mother used, would worry about him having a son who couldn't say a word till after he was four? Didn't learn to read a word until after he was seven. Thomas Edison's teacher said, this boy will never learn anything, he's too stupid. Beethoven's music teacher said, as a composer, this man is, help, is hopeless. F.W. Woolworth of Woolworth fame was given a job in a department store, but he wasn't allowed to, to, to uh, greet the customers because, as they said, quote, he didn't have enough sense. Caruso's music teacher said of him, you'll never be able to sing, you just don't have a voice. Disney was fired by a newspaper because he didn't have, quote, any good ideas. 
And Louisa May Alcott was told by one editor, you'll never be able to write anything that has popular appeal. And the list goes on and on. The fact is that if we're not happy, it is because we have chosen not to be happy. For happiness is a choice. And perhaps some of you may be saying to yourself, well, I want uh, this year to be filled with happiness and fulfillment for me. What are the ingredients for happiness in life if the choice is mine? Well, in the first place, you need something to do. Now, that's pretty simple, isn't it? You just need something to do. Meaningful activity is essential to happiness in life. Even in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were told to tend it. The labor in the Garden of Eden was not the result of the curse. Meaningless activity is the result of the curse. Sometime I think that we are tempted to believe that happiness is the absence of responsibility. If I can just get out from under this burden of responsibility, this load that's bearing me down, I'd be happy. Not really. Even though life sometimes has the stress and the burden that becomes a load to bear, the living creature is so designed that meaningful activity is essential to his happiness and fulfillment. And a person who has nothing meaningful to do is susceptible to depression and to despair. Dr. Edward Rose now who was formerly with Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, tells how he was influenced into the, uh, to, to, to assume the medical profession as his profession. He said that one time as a little boy, he, Edward Rosenau, had an older brother who became gravely ill. He said, I watched as my parents went through the trauma and the distress of my brother's illness for days not knowing if he was going to live or not. And she, he said, one day I was with my parents in the lobby of the hospital when the doctor came out and said to my parents, you can relax, your son's going to be all right. And he said, I was profoundly impressed with the change that announcement made in my parents' life and I decided right then and there that I was going to be a doctor because I wanted to bring light to someone's face. I tell you, not only a doctor is able to bring light to someone's face. A dedicated teacher, a committed plumber, a consecrated businessman, a skillful laborer, all of these kinds of professions, if they're entered into in the right spirit, can bring light to the faces of others. For anything that is done that is meaningful, anything that's done when we're convinced that it is what God wants us to do is meaningful activity when we're convinced this is what God wants me to do today. You read this text again, and it says that Jesus went about all uh, over the region, teaching in the synagogues and preaching the gospel and healing all manner of diseases. Now, now some of you may think that Jesus was some sort of a guru who sat on some mountaintop waiting for people to come and worship Him. 
But not really. Jesus was a hard-working, dynamic individual who went day and night giving up everything he had except his deity to minister to others. And he said, I didn't come to be ministered unto. I came to minister and to give my life as a ransom. A few days ago, Marge Garner gave me a book that I read during the holidays entitled Ordering Your Private World. And in this book is a chapter called The God Called People. And the thesis of that chapter is that people who, have, who are happy in life and are fulfilled in life are the people who are convinced that what they are doing is what God wants them to do. And he lists in that chapter four characteristics of God-calledness. One of them is an understanding of the stewardship of one's life. Now there's not, a, there's not enough time to do everything everybody wants you to do. And there's not enough time to do everything you want to do. But there is enough time to do what God wants you to do. And the important thing is to discover what God wants me to do in this little segment called a day and how he wants me to do it and then do it. And understand that that's my stewardship. That's where God has placed me. A second characteristic of God-calledness is that a person understands who he is and what he is about. In that marvelous 13th chapter of John, it says Jesus knowing that he came from God and was going back to God, took a towel and washed his disciples' feet. Now how did a man find fulfillment in washing a disciple's feet in life? Well, he found that with an understanding that this was who he was and what he was about. He was about washing disciples' feet. The third characteristic of God-calledness is, is an unwavering sense of purpose in life. That just might be the key. You need someone to love. Now there's some of you here who just, you know, well, I, you know, I've been looking just, well, for the right way. Keep on. You need someone to love. Now if you read this text, you might have the idea that Jesus called these disciples only for the purpose of programming them with the, with the ministry of the kingdom and sending them out. But, 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 but if you really study the life of Jesus with his disciples, you'll understand that he had a beautiful relationship with them. And he didn't just give them information and program them in a kind of cold, impersonal way. In fact, the Bible says that he called them in order to be with them. He needed them. I mean, even Jesus needed somebody to love. And I'm real comfortable with the imagination or thought that, that Jesus one day would just put his arm around John's neck, you know, and just kind of wrestle him in a kind of a, a playful scuffle. And I can just see Jesus and Simon Peter, the big fisherman, in, you know, arm wrestling one night while the disciples cheered for Jesus to win. 
And I can just imagine that these disciples were constantly, Jesus the main one, playing practical jokes on doubting Thomas who was so vulnerable to that kind of thing. Because Jesus was perfectly human and he had this beautiful relationship with these men. Oh, how he loved them. Even Jesus needed somebody to love. A.J. Garden in his book, A Touch of Wonder, tells about when he was a little boy scout. His scoutmaster would take them on trips out into the woods and he'd never say a thing. He'd just walk with them in the woods. And when they'd get back to the camp, he'd quiz them on what they observed. You know, trees and plants and birds and animals and insects. And Gordon said that I, we, we never observed a fourth of what he observed and never did we observe as much as he wanted us to observe. And so he'd get all worked up and he said he'd swing his arms around in big wide circles and he'd shout, this beautiful creation and you're keeping it outside. Stop being buttoned up. Stop taking a shower with your raincoat on. Stop taking a shower with your raincoat on. What a graphic way to describe people who are insensitive to the life that goes on around them. But you know, and I know, people who are so buttoned up, who are so closed that they refuse to be open and vulnerable to love somebody or to receive their love. Tanner has a book called Loneliness is the Fear of Love and he says some of us are kind of stranded out here in no man's land. We want to love somebody and we want to receive their love but we're afraid of that. And he says, quote, the fear of love is the root cause of every attitude and form of behavior that separates us from each other. I want to love you, but I'm afraid of that. I want you to love me, but I'm afraid of that. And so I, I button myself up and, and, and fear that. You need somebody to love. Now I know that that's risky business. Anytime you love somebody, you're taking a chance. You're risking a lot to love somebody. C.S. Lewis describes the alternative to that. Listen to it. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it, it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe and dark, motionless, airless, it will change it will not be broken, it will, not, it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell." End quote. Now let me put that C.S. Lewis language in Knox County language. To have no one to love is a living hell. Now some of you might be saying, well all my friends and all my loved ones are gone 
and I have no one to love. My heart goes out to you. But let me suggest that you do not allow your capacity to love somebody die with your family and friends. Mother Teresa didn't. As a matter of fact, she left her family and friends to go to Calcutta, Calcutta to find somebody to love and found a half-starved Hindu woman on the street who still had a capacity to love her and receive her love. And Mother Teresa, recently voted as the most admired woman in all the world, came back to Washington, D.C., was asked to address the joint session of Congress and refused. Instead went down to the Anacostia section, the slum section of Washington, D.C., to a little church. And the retinue of media followed her there, popping their flash bulbs and jamming microphones in her mouth. And somebody asked her, Mother Teresa, what do you hope to, what do you expect to find in America? And Mother Teresa said, I expect to find the joy of loving and being loved. Have you found that joy of loving and being loved? Huxley calls that the last word, and it is, for Jesus told his disciples, Last of all, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. You need somebody to love. Charles Schultz has a book entitled, I Need All the Friends I Can Get. And he has Charlie Brown saying to Lucy, I need friends, I don't have any friends. Lucy said, well, what are friends? Define. And the definitions he gave of friends is amazing. He said, a friend is somebody who will take the side with the sun in his eyes. And there's a picture of this boy with a tennis racket in his hand peering over the net into the sun. A friend is somebody who will watch the same programs you watch on television. A friend is somebody who can't stand the same sort of music you can't stand. A friend is somebody who will take up for you when you're not there. A friend is somebody who accepts you as you are. And about that time, Lucy's about had all that she wants. And she said, you try too hard, Charlie Brown. Take me. I don't need any friends. I'm independent. Charlie Brown said, I do. I need all the friends I can get. I'll even take a fair weather friend. Charlie Brown understood that the way to be happy in life is to have somebody to love. Third, you need something to look forward to. And Jesus said to his disciples, Come after me and I will make you become fishers of men. Now I want you to notice that he called two men in a boat, but there were three men in the boat. James and John and Zebedee. Now he called James and John, but he didn't call Zebedee. And a lot of people have tried to you know, uh, speculate as to why he didn't call Zebedee. J. Winston Pierce has his opinion. He said the reason probably why he didn't call Zebedee was because he knew Zebedee wouldn't follow him. He knew Zebedee had already given up on himself. Well, you see, Zebedee was a little bit older. He was, the son, he was the father of these two sons, and probably he was thinking to himself, well, that's for young people. That's not for me. That idealism, that adventuresome, 
is not for an old man like me. Life has already passed me by. There's nothing for me there. I'll let James and John follow, but not me. Do you, do you have a feeling that, that life's kind of passed you by? Have you lost the thrill of the expectant? Can you imagine these disciples lying on their beds at night and they're thinking, wow, wasn't that something today? I saw him raise somebody from the dead today. What power he has. I wonder if he is the one. I saw him take five loaves and two fishes and feed a multitude. Wow, wasn't that fantastic? And they're lying on their beds at night, tossing and turning, thinking, I wonder what's tomorrow, what tomorrow's going to be like. I wonder what to expect. I wonder what miracle will come tomorrow. And I imagine they just couldn't wait until the morning came to see what was coming next. Have you lost that wonder? Are you one of those who feels that you'll never be any different than what you already are? Jesus said, come after me and I'll start the process of making you something different than you already are. And I'll use the same kind of, I'll use the same person and I'll mold out of you something spectacular and extraordinary. Have you lost the thought of that? That's why I like old Caleb in the Old Testament. I mean 80 year old man ready to settle down on social security that Joshua would provide for him and Joshua said where do you want? What land do you want? He said I'll take the hills over there. Give me those mountains that are yet untamed. Life's not passed me by. That's why Paul could shout, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I like the J.B. Phillips translation of that. I'm ready for anything that comes in life. And so there are 365 days before you in 1987. I'm ready for everything, anything that comes in life knowing that Christ will strengthen me. The expectancy of there's some new thoughts coming out of modern psychology. One of the most helpful is called learned helplessness. Now the idea of learned helplessness is this, that a person can learn, learns by, by a conditioned response to think he can't do anything. I got time to read this, listen. Martin Seligman says, I believe that motivation and emotion are more plastic than cognition, more shaped by the environment. L listen carefully. I'm no longer convinced that special intensive training will raise a child's IQ by 20 points or allow him to talk months early or induce him to write piano sonatas at age five as Mozart did. On the other hand, I am convinced that certain arrangements of environmental contingencies will produce a child who believes he is helpless, that he cannot succeed, 
and that other contingencies will produce a child who believes that his responses matter, that he can control his little world. If a child believes he is helpless, he will perform stupidly regardless of his IQ. If a child believes he is helpless, he will not write a piano sonata regardless of the inherent musical genius. You know what he's saying? He said, you can learn to believe that you can't do anything. Go down to the circus and see an example of it. See the huge elephant with a little rope tied to his leg, tied to the tent pole, and he just kind of comes to the end of that rope and stops. He's got enough power and strength to pull a whole tent down, but he has learned helplessness. For when he's just a little bitty baby elephant, they put a huge log chain around his leg, tie it to a huge pipe, so that when he pulls against it, he, he, he knows he can't move it, he can't budge it. And little by little, they lessen the, the size of the chain until he has learned helplessness and now there's nothing left but a small card. He could snap with a, with a lunge, but he doesn't know that. Jesus says to his disciples, you come after me and I'll give you something to look forward to and I'll give you something that no man can ever do apart from my power. Isn't that exciting and thrilling? You need something to look forward to. One last thought, please. You need somebody to obey. When Jesus said, come after me and I will make you, he was establishing a fundamental principle in life and that is that somebody that we all need somebody to obey we need a master we need a God how long has it been since the Vietnam War I asked the people in the early service they were either speechless or asleep they had nobody answered anybody know been 20 years since the Vietnam War doesn't seem that long does it 12, 13 years? Good, thank you. Seems like only yesterday, doesn't it? I remember seeing those guys come home from, um, from prison camps in Vietnam, one of the most thrilling things. One of those men was a man named Howard Rutledge. He was a pilot for the Air Force, shot down in Vietnam at the start of the war, stayed a prisoner of war until the war's conclusion. He wrote a book, some of you have read it, In the Presence of Mine Enemies. I want to tell you what he said about in that book. This brings her to the end. During those longer periods of enforced reflection, it became so much easier to separate the important from the trivial, the worthwhile from the waste. For example, in the past, I usually worked or played hard on Sundays had no time for church. For years, my wife Phyllis encouraged me to join the family at church. She never nagged or scolded. She just kept hoping. But I was too busy, too preoccupied to spend one or two short hours a week thinking about the really important things. Now the sights and sounds and smells of death were all around me. My hunger for spiritual food soon outdid my hunger for a steak. Now I wanted to know about that part of me that will never die. Now I wanted 
to talk about God and Christ and the church. But in heartbreak, solitary confinement, that's the prison camp, the name of it, there was no pastor, no Sunday school teacher, no Bible, no hymn book, no community of believers to guide and sustain me. I had completely neglected the spiritual dimension of my life. It took prison to show me how empty life is without God. There's so much to do, so little time to do it. I'm so far behind on my bills. I used to work five days, now I work six, now seven. I used to work eight hours a day, now 10, now 12. I used to have one job, now two, to make ends meet. I don't have time for this. And then one day I discover that life is empty and meaningless without it, without Him, without God. And now I can pray with George Matheson, make me a slave, and then I'll be free. And I can say with William Temple, what we need is to be delivered from the, bond, from the, bond, the freedom that is true bondage into the bondage that is true freedom. That when I discover that I can give my life in obedience to a master that is worth my worship, then I have found freedom and fullness of life. This little story you've heard so often, I'm ashamed to tell it again, but I will. There lived in the mountain the wise old philosopher who knew so much. There lived in the valley the young man who thought he knew it all. And one day he decided he would show up the old philosopher. And so he caught a bird. And he invited his friends, let's go to the mountain to see the, the old mountain man. I'll show you how ignorant he really is. When they got to the top of the mountain and called out the old mountain man, the young boy said, old man, what do I have in my hand? Without even looking, the wise old man said, I reckon it's a bird. The smart aleck looked to his friends and smiled smugly. Now the moment of truth, I'll show him up. Old man, tell me, is the bird alive or is it dead? If the old man said the bird is alive, he would crush it to death. If he said it's dead, he would let it fly away. Old man, tell me, is the bird alive or is it dead? And the old philosopher paused a moment and said, It is as thou will it, my son. Happiness is a choice. 
And these empty bottles that God makes available to you called days can be filled with that which blesses or that which curses. It is as thou wilt, my son. Let's pray. Father, we have heard him who has said, Come after me, and I will start the process of your becoming. Some of us have lost the sense of wonder, and we need to hear that again. We have said, I can't. Help us to see that we can. Some of us, Father, are lonely. Bring into our life the desire to love again. God, replace the hate and the bitterness with love. And some of us, Father, have nothing meaningful to do, just meaningless activity. God, give us a sense of purpose and the deep, abiding, unwavering sense of commitment to that purpose that you call us to each day and that which you want done. Because I pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Our invitations this morning are these. The first invitation is for you to invite Jesus Christ into your life. If you're not already a believer, if you've not encountered salvation, Christ for the first time, He comes into one's life to make it brand new. He said all things pass away and new things become. The invitation is for you to come and join the church or to begin again by repenting of those things in your life that has brought unhappiness to you and others. To begin a new walk with God that's meaningful, a new work that has purpose, a new commitment to a master, rededication of your life we call it. These are the invitations to which we call you now in Christ's name. So would you respond if God leads you while we stand to sing?